Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Ian Andrews. And you are uh, listening to Close Reads. It's a podcast for the Incurable Reader on which we are discussing once more Amor Toll's novel, A Gentleman in Moscow. This is the Q&A episode, of course. And uh, so that means that we're at the end of our time here with uh, with Amor Tolls, with Count Rostov, and uh, with, with Ian also. So, mm-hmm. Ian, here's my advice to you on this episode. Make it count. <laughs> <laughs> I will do my best. <laughs> Or, or we could go all saving Private Ryan and say, "Earn this." Yes. <laughs> oh, what Which a really those are the same rushing last line. Oh, okay. Well, we are here to answer questions. Let's just dig right in because we've got a bunch. Uh, some people posted them on the thread over on Facebook, and then some people posted them on the episode on Substack. And I appreciate everyone who did that Substack thing because it's actually. It's actually quite helpful for me. So if anybody, if more people wanted to do that, I wouldn't complain. It also gives people who are not on Facebook an opportunity to chime in, which uh, I support. Um, okay, let's do this. Heidi, you said there was one that we needed to talk about. And let's just start there. Shall we? Should we just get this one out of the way? Yeah. I, and I don't mean get it out of the way because it's the wrong question, but because it's, it's the right um, question. It's the right question. Okay, so this comes from Suzanne. And she says, this question might be verbosen or perhaps just ungentlemanly, but did this book merit a close read? Big eye emoji going on there. Uh, did the over-analysis spoil it for anyone else? I made myself read it at the pace of the podcast instead of gobbling it up like the piece of candy it seems to be, and so lost enjoyment of it halfway through. Maybe it just could have been covered in fewer episodes. I say this as an adoring Close Reads fan who loves to listen to y'all talk about books uh, I just had to make sure that that last little bit got put in there for my own self-esteem. Okay, Heidi, what do you think about this? You've been you've been doing the show for a long time. We've done a lot of different kinds of books. We we did actively say we wanted to do a lighter book. Uh-huh. We, we try to not have all heavy books, and we were in the midst of a run of heavy, bordering on bleak titles. So, I thought this book, as far as that that was concerned, did come at the right time. What do you think about this question, though? I, I actually really like this question. That's why I said off the air, we should we should address it. Uh, not necessarily to defend our choice, but because I think it's a really important question to ask about this book. And uh, because it is an easier read, a lighter read, so to speak. But at the same time, Tolls is, and I think successfully, and this is why I wanted to answer it, uh, he he is attempting to to bring up some of these big questions of of contemporary time questions about that that you know we've been we've been talking about that over the last several weeks and i think he actually succeeds in this i think um that i think doesn't he quote montaigne doesn't tolls quote montaigne in the book um of course montaigne is a recurring you know secondary Character or idea, motif, so to speak. And um the quote, reference. Yes, reference. Um illusion. Yeah. And he says, uh, Montaigne, yeah, okay. Montaigne's maxim that the surest sign of wisdom is constant cheerfulness. And and I think that this is a book that's attempting to 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 make a case that a life of of breadth is as valid a way to endure great suffering as a life of depth, right? With Mishka, mm. we have depth. With the Count, we have breadth. And um, and 
and there's and but both of them have this like core of goodness and endurance um and a love of the good that that keeps them anchored throughout one of the most tumultuous times in history and i don't think that tolls is making light of that uh i think that he's he's offering um he's offering the count and his relentless constant cheerfulness as a voice of reason as a voice of wisdom as a way of enduring great suffering uh and and trying to make the case that that is just as valid a way as you know as as this like kind of search for depth and soul searching or whatever um and the count does that and i think he succeeds in that and so i do think it merits a close read plus being beautifully written and having all these wonderful allusions to these books that we read and flouting like and i use that word which is a relatively aggressive word kind of like flouting the modern literary tradition of just constant bleakness and nihilism like this book seems to be standing against that and saying there's another way constant cheerfulness is a way of being wise uh and and i think we have to take that seriously and not just like kind of put it on the beach read pile. I think it's a serious attempt to answer real questions. And I think it succeeds. Ian, do you wanna do you wanna add to this? There's not much to add. I, I really like that answer. I also think that just take a step back from this novel, um, all of us literary folks and all of you listeners who are literary folks, um would do well to remember that one of the things we're always after is cultivating a habit of mindfulness as we read, regardless of the category of thing that we're reading. Um, I've, I can think of a lot of beach reads that are, even if the stature of the work in question isn't particularly high, are still asking and answering human questions. And so I think really anything you want to pick up can be read closely and maybe should be read closely uh, if we're really going to be earnest readers. So yeah, this was absolutely worth close reading. David is eating ramen. Yeah, yeah. Is ramen worth eating when you're hungry? <laughs> yep. That's my answer to the question. I like it. <laughs> I like it. An objective um, correlative. Okay. Hannah asks a question here about toes, 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 style. Uh, she says, this, his style is a bit overwritten, self-consciously clever, etc. Some of us, Hala, find it charming, some obnoxious. However, for me, she says, the most poignant passages are set off by a switch to a spare, understated style, whose contrast to the overall tone makes them stand out beautifully. For example, the super long self-indulgent indulgent footnote that begins talking about the difficulty of keeping names straight in Russian novels, can I get an amen, and winds up stating in very spare language what happens to the Count's fellow aristocrat. It had, it's way more of a gut punch for me than reading Solzhenitsyn. Similarly, we notice the Count aging through his reduced number of exercises in the morning, subtle but poignant. Um, finally, I think there's enough in the text between Anna and the Count for me to see the depth of their relationship, almost, although most of it is developed off screen. Her calling him out for her rumping is a great example. She knows him well enough to know he's especially sensitive about becoming an old fuddy-duddy, and she gently calls him on it. Okay, so she's leaving a comment here more than a question. I recognize that. Um, but what I want to know is, do you do you agree with the idea of the more poignant passages being um, more meaningful than the stuff that people find relentlessly charming. Like, do you think that is a contrast he's doing on purpose? And if so, like, do you do agree with Hannah? Ian, what do you think of this? 
Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I think um, it's this goes back to something we were talking about in our last episode, I believe, about how we wish that there were more plot oriented moments, because uh, when he does turn to plot development, he does it so well um, and it punches so hard. And I do think that it's probably valid to say that this is true of his style as well. Um, He lulls you into a false sense of security so that that one line where something really important happens sneaks up on you and is impactful because of that. So yeah, I think that's a really good observation. Yeah. I mean, having read his other books, uh, I, he's perfectly capable and I think very good at, um, at, at, at pathos and sadness and exploring the depth of harder emotions than the count kind of lets in. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so it's a conscious, it is absolutely a conscious choice on his part, uh, in this novel to keep the emotional tenor at, um, a more steady pitch, um, adding to that contrast of, of pathos that, um, that's alluded to in the comment. Um, and I think it's, very successful. I I think the the scene that he does that the best for me is the scene on the roof with the bees. Um, I mean, it's a suicide attempt Mm -hmm. and it's written with such um, care and precision and tenderness, but it, it still is in the count's voice, right? Or the, maybe, well, not directly in the count's <laughs> voice, but that's not, but it's the tone um, in which even in suicide, he's kind of keeping out of that like locked part of him. He's maintaining himself as a gentleman. And yet we still feel what he's feeling. And that I think is Toll's beautiful, like very skilled writing that's able to do that. Um, it's far, far more skilled and precise than I think um, is evident on a skim, which is another reason why I think it's worth a close read, right? Um, that 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 maintaining that kind of like style that some might consider light, the tone that some might consider light is an intentional choice on his part. It takes a lot of restraint and a lot of care um, in order to do that so that he can communicate who Rostov is to us. Hmm. Um, Do you, okay. So there, uh, there was a question that was related to this that I wanted to to bring up, but of course I just lost it. There's one here from Aaron. She, She says, do you, to me, it seems that the book lives in a kind of no man's land between compelling deep thought on the great questions of life and existence and then a jaunty beach read. So do you think it can serve the purpose of getting people to read something a bit more serious than fluff, like a gateway drug to more serious literature? And then also, can it simply be a beach read for thoughtful people? Although for me, I'd rather be one or the other and not so much. This is Aaron. Or do you just not agree with the premise? How do you, what do you think? I actually do agree with this. And in fact, I recommend this novel to people all the time. If they're like, I don't read a lot, but I would like to, what kind of, what should I read? I will, I always recommend Wendell Berry and Amor Tolls. Um, and you should read Gentlemen in Moscow. You'll love it. And without, without fail, it's appealing in some way. People come back and I really liked that novel. It was really good. What should I read next kind of thing? And so I do think it is a bit of like a gateway drug, but I think it's a thoughtful novel on its own, um, for, for all people, if we engage with it on its terms. And there's another question about that, like, yeah. And, um, and so I think that, 
Um, to Aaron's point, I really liked how she added that though. Um, I liked Aaron, how you added at the end that you prefer one or the other. And I think that's valid too. This is a book that kind of attempts to straddle. And so it might be one of those books that um, is going to be a bit off-putting to the more um, intellectual reader. And I think that's okay too, because we don't have to read anything. <laughs> so, but um, I, th- I think that uh, for, for people, this is a definite recommendation for people who are like, I want to become a reader, but I don't know where to start. This is a great beginning. So there is a question here from Lindsay, and we are going to come to that question about coming, you know, accepting the terms uh, here shortly. There's a question from Lindsay. She says, there was a lot of talk, although I'm two episodes behind, about Toll's talent as a writer and his book being up to the challenge of the questions he is posing. I loved Rules of Civility and Gentlemen in Moscow, she says, and I like Lincoln Highway. It was a fun read. Do you think Amor Tolls has a quote, magnum opus in him? What do you expect from him as an author in the future? Heidi, I'm going to go to you first on this one because you've read his other books and Ian, you've never read the other two, right? I have not. Okay. No, this is my only Tolls experience. Yeah, I do. I think that um, I, my personal, oh, I don't know if opinion, opinion's way too strong. Um, my wondering, <laughs> my wondering has been, um, is you really can't and shouldn't have an opinion about people's motives, right? That's not a thing to have an opinion about. Um, but yeah. I, I, I wonder if Lincoln Highway was that attempt. And I think that um, one of the reasons why it is maybe his weakest book is because it's his most ambitious. Um, and And I think that I'm really, really eager and excited to read whatever he's writing next, because I do think he's got a magnum opus in him. Um, And so I... I'm excited about that. I think he has an incredible um, sensibility and an understanding, a precision of writing, um, like a real feel for the zeitgeist, especially the American experience. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I, I love him. I think he's a great writer and I can't wait to read more from him. Ian, do you want to? Do you want to add anything? And nah, I'm ill-equipped to, to answer that question. It could be that one of his other books is a magnum opus. I will say, I don't think this one is, mm-hmm. but along with what Heidi was saying earlier, um, it's, it is beautiful. It's well-crafted. It's well-executed. And I don't think he was trying to write the next greatest novel ever written when he sat down to do this, which probably contributes to the lightness of tone. And we've already talked about how that tone is pretty essential to his thematic punch. So, um, so I, I don't have really anything bad to say about this book. David, I really want to hear your opinion on this. I think if he, I think the best novel he ever writes is going to be much quieter and more introspective because like if you get into the, the best parts of his work, for example, I think the best, the best things he's written are sections of rules of civility. I can understand if people don't like that book as much, but I think the best bits of it are when he, when his character there gets introspective. I totally agree. So I, I think that probably whatever his magnum opus is, is going to be um, a book that on the surface seems quieter, is more, it's more uh, actively in the head of a self-aware single character, perhaps written in the first person. Um, and I think that that would allow him, it like would bring to the fore the things he's best at. Um, I think he'll he'll probably deal in some kind of Americana or like 
but I wouldn't be surprised if it, you know, the next book he writes takes place in like, you know, Paris in the 20th or like he's a war novel or something like that. Like he's a little bit more rugged or something like that, you know? Um, but he, he seems like he's interested in so many things and that's going to lend him to, a, to a lot of possibilities. That's going to offer him a lot of possibility. But I think that whatever he writes, that's like going to be considered his magnum opus. Should he, should he get there is, is going to be what I said. It's going to be on the surface. It's going to seem quieter and it's going to, it doesn't mean it's shorter. Uh, you know, he could maybe it'll be 600 pages, but it'll be, I, th- I think it'll be more focused. Um, and even a gentleman in Moscow, I think is a little bit, it's a little bit, um, uh, rabbit traily discursive, um, in a way that's like, I think it's what makes it fun, but I think it limits its possibility as like a magnum opus. <laughs> yeah. Um, he needs to kill more darlings. Uh, okay. okay. So, I mean, that to me is the thing that really held back um, Lincoln Highway, which I think is a kind of a, a fun book, but needed. I mean, I've said it. I need. I think. I think it would have been served by being having more of it edited. Uh, okay. You know what? Well, let's go ahead and do um, this one here. This was over on the Substack. Okay. This is from Elizabeth Troutman and uh, Ian. Yeah. What book would you bring along with your toothbrush and three changes of clothes to escape house arrest? B. If you did not answer Anna Karenina like the Count, explain why Tim should deign to continue podcasting with you. Wow. That's a very confrontational question. Well, I don't, <laughs> I don't actually think the second part of the question applies because I have only rarely ever podcasted with Tim and we have never sat through an entire book together. So I get to wiggle out of that part of the question. Uh, Tim sure. He kind of has deemed not to podcast yeah, exactly. with you in the first place. Well, I'm, I am, I'm budget Tim, right? Like, <laughs> So I think uh, I don't have to answer that part, but the first part That's I thought hilarious about and false. I read, I read this, but still funny. I read this, uh, this question actually earlier today and was thinking about it really hard. And I didn't want to just give the answer everyone expected, but I think I have to, I think I'm, I think I would bring the Lord of the Rings. Um, and the reason for that is like, because the other option in my mind was the brothers Karamazov and yeah. The problem with Brothers K is that it is it gets to its resolution and its redemption via such an impossibly dark meditation on human nature and is so heavy. Um, and I'm so impressionable that I think it would put me in a bad place consistently. You need the hope of Sam carrying Frodo yeah, up the mountain. Like there's, there's more... And then Frodo failing in the end. There's more light and beauty along the way in Tolkien's story. And I think I would, I think I'd bring the Lord of the Rings. And if I didn't bring I mean, Lord of the Rings, I would bring the wind in the willows. Hmm. With your Pink Floyd vinyl. Right. Heidi, what about you? Um, can I bring the complete works of Shakespeare? No, no. That's, well, a, that's a standard have, no, cop out with a question like this. I have a book that is this big. Uh, yeah, it, I enough. have it all in one beautiful copy in the bookshop. So I don't know. I have, yeah. like, if Emily, I can sell it so as a single a book. A few years back, you I bought chose for Emily. three books in one. <laughs> I did. You could still carry it around, though. I, so I bought for Emily uh, a facsimile of the first folio. Mm. It's like two foot by a foot and a half or something. It's big, gorgeous coffee table book. And she's tried to choose that on many occasions under questions like this. It's no that's fair. a tough one. It isn't fair. I acknowledge that. And obviously we are not allowed to pick the Bible because 
it's the Bible and it's that Bible. has to win. Right. Right. Um, so, so actually I, I would probably, if I'm going to be trapped on a desert Island for the rest of my life, I'm going to bring well, you're in house, you're in house, house arrest. arrest. Right. Oh, I have desert See, Island that's in why, my head. That's why I accept Shakespeare, Shakespeare because like you're not carrying it around on an Island. You're sitting on a <laughs> desk in your room. Still cheating. Still cheating. Uh-huh. Okay. So I'm sticking with that. Unless, but if Ian made me choose, I'm I would. You choose. I would pick the Iliad. You you just really want to meditate on the rage of Peleus and Achilles. Yes, I do. It's right on. Yeah, I love I it. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Yeah. On behalf um, of the question asker, I will accept that answer. I'll allow it. A desert yeah. island would have been the Odyssey, but if I'm under house arrest, I would take, <laughs> I'll take the Iliad. <laughs> okay. Um, Here's just a uh, one from Sue. It's kind of about something that a re- reoccurring image throughout the novel. There are repeated references to the potted palms in the lobby. Uh, from the day the count walked in under escort to the day he left, he sat in the chair between them, or some visitor would stand behind them. In 32 years, nothing changed about the potted plants. What's the deal with the potted plants? I'm going to paraphrase her final question. Is there significance to this, do you think? I don't know. I mean, other than the unchanging nature of them and kind of anchoring them in our minds um, in like a setting kind of way. I don't know if there is a significance. That's that's all I had taken from it. Ian? I, I agree with Heidi. Um, I do think they contribute, and the reason he keeps mentioning them is it is very evocative of a hotel lobby, right? Especially at a really fine hotel Um, that like, for me, that image just takes me there personally and I can, I can see it and I can feel it. And, and so that unchanging atmosphere where you're you're kind of like living the same day, it's a little bit of a, um, Oh, what's the name of the movie? Groundhog day. Where It's just over and over. You wake up in the same place and the light is the same because it's artificial light. And it's just, there's, there's an unchanging nature to the days. Mm. That's what I would say. Do you think they're the same potted plants? I, yeah, I thought they were just artificial potted plants. I don't know. I hadn't thought about them until that came up in the Q&A. I have not because read closely enough. I, that I whole took thing them about for granted. They're going to set, they, they're going to replace the flowers yes. with fake flowers. And the guy's like, okay, I will do what you ask then. So we don't have to. Re- so I don't know that. It seems like the ho- they wouldn't have done plastic fake ones. Yeah, you're probably right. So are they 32-year-old potted plants? I don't know. <laughs> Can we get to the bottom yeah. of this? <laughs> We're stumped. Okay, Debbie says, um, she, she said, thank you for our last episode. So thank you to Debbie for being nice. But then she says, all the strengths and weaknesses were balanced and focused in our, in our conversation. And then hey, she says, maybe this, that's good. Maybe this book is better discussed in one gulp. What do you think of that question? Ian is... I kind of... He's making a face dark that and could be interpreted face. in many ways. I kind, I, so I, I read this comment and kind of found myself agreeing a little bit. Okay. Um, I think it feels to me like this was written to be read in a couple of sittings. It's not a very long novel to begin with. Um, and it reads so quickly and so easily. And I think he did that intentionally. And so 
I think if we were to discuss this in one two hour conversation, um, it maybe would have held up a little bit better than it did under hours and hours of pretty intense scrutiny. So I will present the other side, which is that um, Tolls is so careful on the details and so thoughtful on selecting the illusions and uh, the like the background details, the conversation about, you know, vodka and movies and cocktails and food. And it seems to be a book that's inviting us to kind of revel in the small things of life and as, as well as a kind of, as well as the big things. And so I, I liked being able to kind of like luxuriate in it um, and pay attention to those, to those small details and give them the care and precision that our author put into them. I enjoyed that. And I, I think that the first time I read it, I read it like in a gulp. And so it felt good to sip it a little bit. So, okay. There's a question here from AJ, which I really like that I think is, is in some ways related to this. So it's a little bit long. So just bear with me. AJ says, does Toll's decision to make the count a super gentleman <laughs> largely prevent a plot? I'm going to be careful here, says AJ, because when a review of a book, movie, show, whatever, just turns into how the critic would have written it instead, it's a big pet peeve of mine. Amen. But the time hops are such conscious choices, I can't avoid it. So much of the book's frustrations that seem to come from Toll's own self-impositions too. If he doesn't want to write a war book, fine. But more or less skipping the entirety of the great patriotic war through a time jump would be like locking the count up at an inn in AD 30 or 30 AD Judea and barely mentioning Jesus. <laughs> As Ian mentioned, this is an is it this is as unbelievable as an early 20th century learned Russian aristocrat having no interior thoughts on God. So why did Tolls write this book? At times it feels like he's just playing the accordion for 462 pages. It also it's also kind of weird that the most compelling parts, besides a few great lines or moments, are the plot-driven set pieces like the hospital scene or the last 50 pages. Another distracting example of avoidance by tolls was the 1926 to 1930 jump where Rostov is suddenly now a waiter with no internal debate or specific sadness over going from the served to the server, presumably because he's too noble to notice or maybe care. For example, comparison, I never had the same feeling about the Count of Monte Cristo being too much of a super superman, and that's one of my favorite books, so it can work, but I can't exactly pinpoint why in Monte Cristo it's a selling point, and here it seems to be a handicap. Is the problem that Bolshevism and slash house arrest are too abstract or not worthy enough villains by comparison, or is there something else? Heidi, what do you think about this one? Oh, sorry, you're muted. So first of all, I think that every single criticism or question that's brought up is completely valid in this comment. Um, and you all should have seen Ian's face listening to this very <laughs> thoughtful and well-written question. Playing the um, accordion for 462 yeah. <laughs> pages with a good line. <laughs> yes. Um, so I think that, and I think one of the reasons that this continues to be a conversation that we're having several weeks later um, and can't leave behind in the first episode uh, is because it's a gentleman in Moscow. And those of us who know anything about Russian history and Russian literature uh, find the contrast between this, um, um, this aristocrat 
with who who has this great breadth and not as much depth as we expect from Russian people from Russian characters. And I think that that's very, very valid as we keep saying over and over again. Like, that's right. That's right. He um, is in a way sort of asking for it when yes. he writes the right. book sort of in the tradition. And, of I, and I think that that's fair. And so if this was a gentleman in Paris, a gentleman in London, a gentleman in New York, we might not be having this conversation over and over and over again. Right. I, and I really, because it's particularly, um, it, it stretches our belief, I think a little bit too much to, to make him Russian and then not give him a Russian spirit. He was very much a Western man. Um, I think that, and, and Ian, Ian is going to maybe present a different side to this because I saw his face when I said that, <laughs> but I, I mean, nobody's asking that question about PG Woodhouse. Nobody's saying, hey, and I realize it's a different kind of novel, but there is an expectation of kind of remaining on the surface of things in uh, in the West that there isn't in Moscow. Well, I, I think part of that, though, is that like if you look at Woodhouse, like Woodhouse is a satirist. I mean, it, that's what I'm saying. It's a different kind of novel. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. But I, I, I'm saying the setting is... The setting is particularly relevant, I think, to this question and the choice to put him in Russia and then make him pretty much a Western man is, I don't know. It's hard. It's, it's not as believable. Okay. So let's say hypothetically, let's say um, you put him in New York during the great depression or um, Richmond during the civil war or London during World War II, Jack the Ripper, right? or whatever. Right. You're right. Um, sure. And you barely mention those things. Would it not? Do you, like? Wouldn't that be make you feel like something is lacking? I don't know because it's particular. I mean, to be honest, it's particularly English to consider it noble to stay out of the deep things of life, right? Like, there's there's this sense of like, mm, put that aside. I'm too much of a gentleman, right? And there might mm-hmm. be more of that in. I don't know. That's why I always say in England in the mid 20th century is like a nation of people with attachment disorders. <laughs> Give the kids to the nanny and stop talking about serious things. And your breeding is too good to talk about that at the dinner table. Like that's, I, I do think that there's a, an element of that that's more appropriate to the West than to the East. And um, in terms of the, the nature of a Western kind of way of thinking. I mean, Ian just held up remains of the day. Um, so of course that's an exception to that. Of course. Like, well, no, I think part yeah. of the point of the remains of the day yeah. is just that. Right. right. Well, I mean, he's basically oh, I saying, see. This yes. is a, this is a flaw of this approach. And I mean, the question of whether that's truly noble, right. where dignity comes from, does it come from our bearing? Uh, Ishiguro seems to say, Maybe not. Maybe not. But that yeah. is the English way. If this was right. an, and if this was a I mean, look at all of the Agatha Christie novels that are written during World War II and barely addressed in 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 and again, it's a different kind of novel. So, but I do think it's particular to this setting. I think and I think there is this spiritual quality that is lacking in the novel that we frankly agreed. 
It mm-hmm. seems all three of us are like, yeah, that's missing. That would have been on the mind, especially of a Russian. Um, so I actually think everything in that comment is right. I still think the novel works. Mm. I have thoughts about that. I <laughs> please convince me so otherwise. I think, well, I I know I like your comment a lot. I, th- what a lot of hay has been made by us and by our listeners about the setting and whether Tolls is writing an essentially English or Western or American novel, and he's just borrowing some Russian tropes, and whether that's disingenuous and all these sorts of things. I I wonder if we're not making a little bit too much of that, um, and because let's look at. Tolstoy for a second and talk about his characterization of the aristocracy. Um, One of his favorite things to do is have all of these Russian nobles speaking French. Right. And for him, it's a, it's emblematic of their rejection more or less of their own culture. Maybe it's too strongly put, but this, so what Tolstoy is telling me is that a Russian aristocrat, particularly in this era is a Western man. And maybe that that's artificial. And maybe that that contributed, regardless of whether these revolutions were were successful or carried out well or wrongheaded from the start, a contribution to that was the westernization of the aristocracy, them more or less throwing over their Russianness in exchange for something that they see in the Western nations that they want to emulate, right? So I, I don't know that these these setting quibbles are quite as thoroughly founded as as I was thinking they were earlier in our discussions. Um, maybe this problem comes down to the idea that like, look, the count is not very real outside of his relationships with the women in his life. He's kind of the perfect gentleman. He's kind of unassailably unflappable, (laughs) except when it comes to Nina and Sophia and Anna. And I wonder if that's not a real representation of life, actually. I mean, we, none of us, I'll speak for men because I am one, know ourselves particularly well. And the extent to which we do generally comes from the intimate relationships we have in our lives, sometimes from friendships with other men, but usually from the women in our lives. That's <laughs> generally even if it's your mother. Out. Yeah, even if it's your mother, like generally where we figure out who in the heck we are and what makes us tick. And so I don't know, that, that actually could be an aspect of realism in the story right. that doesn't bother me all that much. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I've been thinking a lot about as since last time we talked is um, is whether Tolls likes the Count as much as we've assumed he does. Mm, that's a fun question because there's a lot of stuff into the book that I I find him to be quite annoying. A lot of moments when I find him to be quite annoying or like he's a little bit stuck up or and I and and at first at first glance I thought okay it's just. He, the count he when he does that it's meant to be some sort of like effort at nobility and so we're supposed to praise him for that but then if you look at how that his actions would be interpreted by other people or the with things that he says might be interpreted by other people it doesn't it could come across as being a lot more uh birdie wooster aloof yeah aloof but birdie wooster than we might think on the surface i so i've been thinking about that i and that might that might complicate the book in a way that i don't wasn't giving it credit for. I, Heidi, I don't know that you would agree with that though. I don't, but I, <laughs> I think once, I think, I think once an author writes a book and puts it into the public square, it is now belongs to us. Mm-hmm. And so at least to some we, degree. Yeah. And I, I think that the count, I, 
Nothing about this book is realistic, literally nothing. So Mm -hmm. to come at it with the criticisms of realism is, I think, unfair to the book. Not allowing it to be itself. I think the book is (laughs) a fairy tale. Like it is, it's a fable. It's, nobody is condemned in Russia. Like all these questions about like the KGB, what about the KGB? Yeah, right. In real life, none of this would have happened. They would all be dead. He would have been in a concentration camp. He would be dead by the second year. Like there's, there's, Sophie, Sophia never would have escaped. Right. Like the, the most realistic thing about this book is that Nina died. And Mishka. Okay. And, so then right? let me, let me ask you this. Cause there is this question about the terms of the book then. Okay. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll come back to there for the phrasing of, I think it's Rachel's question. I'll come back to the phrasing on that in a second, but you're, you're saying it's a fable. It's a fairy tale. It's not realism. Right. Where does the book, I, I'm asking this as a rhetorical question to some degree, I suppose. Where does the book reveal itself to us as such? The suicide. Or the suicide attempt. You mean as a fable, as a fairy tale? Yeah, go on. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, first of all, the suicide attempt itself is has all of the dramatic flair that we would expect from a theatrical performer dancing up and down the side of the roof in tap shoes, (laughs) right? So it's there first, but then the way that it's averted and by the kind of uh, representation of the Russian soul, that is this guy building a fire on the roof, keeping bees, right? Like that is the most fanciful scene in the entire novel, maybe Mm -hmm. with the possible second of Sophia becoming a piano genius on the sly, right? Like um, if it's going to reveal itself as a fairy tale, that's where it does it, I would say. To me, this novel is, I like that a lot. I think to me, this novel is the novel equivalent of the movie Life is Beautiful. About the father in the concentration camp with his son and how he saves his son through convincing him that it's all a game. That's fascinating because that movie gets at just about the same criticisms like it's it's yes. it's it's controversial in the same way and people dislike it for the same reason that people are disliking gentlemen in moscow it's and and it's completely unrealistic there is no way that a father can get a child through the most dreadful tormenting place in a, a hell a living hell and that is what Russia was during this time. And Solzhenitsyn, Vodolajkin, like these, the, the record keepers of that time, we need them. They, they have written a book that's frankly more important and truthful than A Gentleman in Moscow. And if you have to choose between the two, take Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. Read The Aviator, right? Like that is Russia. Yeah. However, this is a book about the triumph of the human spirit. This is a which that is a cliche, but that's what it's about. It's about somebody who manages to live, like Montaigne said, the wisdom of constant cheerfulness through one of the most dreadful times in history and and uh and keeps himself as a gentleman inwardly and outwardly and and there's a nobility to that there's a dignity to that there's something to take seriously about that but it is not a book about the bolsheviks hmm. it's a book about that okay so let's say you get the opportunity to adapt this 
book into a movie or TV show or miniseries or something, which we know is happening with you and McGregor playing the count. Okay, so what would what would you do? What choices would you make? Can you think of anything that would be like important to you or essential mm. in adapting it to capture what we're talking about? To make sure that it maintains its its essence. Wes Anderson needs to direct. <laughs> yeah. Wes Anderson. I don't know. It might be a little acerbic for it, honestly. I mean, I don't know if Royal Tenenbaums and can you know I mean even like uh he, even uh Grand Budapest Grand Budapest dude. Hotel. But Ian, can you for for those like me and like many of our listeners who sure, are not yeah. like savvy in the I film was sort world? Of, I was right. sort of we I was sort of joking. That was, that was not a very right. well considered comment. Um no, I just think that Wes Anderson's famous for whimsy in his directing style. Um, for for fanciful presentations of really really hard and and sorrowful ideas, um, and his characters are super complex, and I think that's that's part of what this book calls for. But I don't know. I was chuckling. I'd make I'd make it a musical. <laughs> sound of Music. Okay. No, I'd make it like. Uh, well, I mean, think about the Sound of Music. That's like really like a very serious. Thing that's yeah. happening there. No, like uh, you know, what's the um what's the one with the two gangs? West West Side Side Story? Story. Or you've got like what's the one about the there's what's the I'm not very I always forget musical titles. Um the one with the uh the chair and all that. I do not know what that is. The one with one the chair. With the chair and all that. <laughs> Phantom of the Opera? Mm. Phantom oh, of the okay. Opera is there much you more go. In- the there you go. <laughs> I I stand I stand uh with with Phantom of the Opera as my other defense. Um but like so many musicals have been made to capture like difficult or problematic things in a way that allows it to be a little bit, you know, consumable. And he's he's kind of doing that with this book in some ways. Um <laughs> the Lion King. That's a musical. Uh, okay. Um, I'm not talking like singing in the rain musicals here. More mm-hmm. like how they do Sound of Music or like Moulin Rouge or like, you know, like not Grease. So like Baz Luhrmann? Uh, Baz Luhrmann could destroy this. It would be so good. <laughs> no, not like that. It oh, be- he would be great. What are you talking about? Okay. How about like Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah. Okay. Fiddler on the Roof is a great kind of comparison to this. As it lets it be hard. Um, yeah, there we go. But Fiddler on the Roof, this, that's what I was looking for. There's this thread of of goodness and hope. Um, Fiddler on the Roof does, frankly, wrestle with the transcendent in a way that the gentleman in Moscow does not. What it spoils in um, Vast Eternal Plan. If I right. were a wealthy man, if I were a, right, um, and I, but I, I think, to me, what is so compelling about this novel is the fact that it is so that it is written and popular right now in this cultural moment that is all about deconstruction, and yet this novel that is about reconstruction that's about maintaining what has already been constructed this is like this is exactly what gk chesterton says when he's taught when he talks about if you are in a world that just is destroying institutions the problem is 
is that then you're tearing down your own house with your own hands, right? Like the foolish woman in Proverbs 14. And so what he's, what, what, uh, Chesterton says is that if you're walking through a field and you see a fence post before you pull it out, you should ask, what is this here for? And this is a book, in my opinion, that is doing exactly that. It's saying, what is this here for? What is this? Why wine? Why food? Why the metropole? Why manners? Why that, like, what is the, the little um, summoner? Why the summoner? Right. Maybe there's more to it than just to be destroyed and thrown out by by the Bolsheviks. And in that sense, I think that Bolshevik Russia is the perfect setting for it because there here comes the Bolsheviks that were like, let's get rid of everything. Everything. And why and and this novel is saying that's not. Like we sh- we have to ask the question: What is this institution? What is this tradition here for? And the count is himself representative of the tradition, and this is a book that upholds him instead of sweeping him away. And so, in spite of all the quibbles over over this novel, it's worth reading simply because of that in an in an atmosphere of deconstruction. Here, here. Um. Okay. Let. Let's let's speak for the sake of time. Again, these Q and A's are always a little abrupt. I say it every time. Uh, there's a question here from Rachel that um, that I've been re- we've been referring to, and we sh- we should make sure we touch on it. Uh, Rachel says, "With this book, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to accept the terms, like the terms of a book. We've been talking about that a lot. I'm wondering about your thoughts on two aspects. First, the tropes. Personally, I like them. The fantasy world that they create balances the count's lack of depth, which would otherwise bore me." To what extent can you criticize the tropes while still accepting the terms? This is a great question. Secondly, okay, so mark that down. We got to talk about that. Secondly, the Russianness. Is it fair to expect the characters, other than the aristocratic count, to be Russian? This bothers me more because it's my area of study and I found it distracting. I would be fine with everyone acting like an Englishman if there weren't so many self-conscious Russian literary references. When he occasionally made cultural references, he got them half right, very much like someone who read it in a book. I found this frustrating not because he got it wrong, but because it jerked me out of the world of the story for moments I was enjoying. He seemed to be trying to have it both ways. Pretentiousness about the literature and the ignorance of the culture. Though I love the book, I wonder if it is fair to consider having it both ways terms the reader must accept. Where do you think the line is between seeing flaws and rejecting the terms? I think this is like an essential question when it comes to reading something. Because you can... To 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 criticize something is not necessarily to misunderstand the thing that it is. If that makes sense, you can not, you can you can you can understand what something is in its nature and still criticize it um, in a valid in a valid way. In fact, that's the most valid form of criticism. Um, and the work of criticism is to identify the nature of something in its most essential form, and then try to determine whether it it uh, lives up to. The conversation lives up to the uh, the terms that it sets forth. Um, Heidi, what do you think about this? Well, I'll go with you to you first. So let's add, let's do this first part. To what extent can you criticize the tropes while still accepting the terms? I don't know. I think that the tropes are part of the terms. That that's kind of. Um, I think I think it is a fantasy. I don't think it's intended. All. I, I, I've kind of already made my my point and answered this question. So you would answer it the same way? Yeah, I think that the tropes are 
some are going to find it cliche. And I think that Tolls is very aware of that and is more skilled than we're giving credit to him for, for putting those into the story. I think that it is a fantasy um, and is not intended to be realistic. And, um, and, and so the, the kind of magical feeling of the tropes is part of the point. Um, and, and so in accepting the terms of the novel, I think we accept the tropes as part of the terms. It doesn't mean we have to like it. It doesn't mean it, we could be like, I don't know. It just didn't work for me. I thought it was trite. I thought it was glib. Right. Um, and I think that's a fair criticism, but that's a criticism that's standing on the terms of the novel to the point of the question. Um, you can say, I just think the whole thing didn't work because it's glib. And I think that's perfectly fair. Yep. But but the tropes then are part of the terms of that criticism. Ian. Yeah, I agree uh, with what Heidi said. Um, my, I think I might have said this on the air before. It might have been in our Lord of the Rings track previously, but um, for many years, I have a recurring conversation, usually with concerned moms and dads, about Harry Potter, the book that shall not be named. Um, and the conversation <laughs> we have to have usually is, hey, guys, witchcraft and wizardry is an aspect of the setting of the story. It is not essential or inherent to its thematic heft and is therefore an illegitimate reason to reject the story out of hand. We have to accept a book's terms before we can engage with its content. And that's basically exactly what Heidi just said. And I would agree with her on this. In this book, the tropes are certainly a part of the terms that we must accept in order to engage the content. Um, so yeah, I, I'm in favor of reading more, not less, I guess is, I guess is what I would say. David? looking thoughtful right now i like Pensive, to give like a little like say. a little running commentary on on the faces i'm looking at while we're recording <laughs> so our listeners can imagine pockmarked with lines gazing of doubt off into the distance he's he's hopeful but he is plagued with doubts he disagrees or isn't sure he's going to accept the terms of our comments um this is a yes and or yes, but situation, I think. Because those two books work on, for the sake of this conversation, two levels. And I'm not even sure I want to say that. But for the sake of this conversation, don't attack me yet. Um, <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about this as I say it. I mean, I think about this all the time, but I'm thinking about how it works in this book as I say it. There is the... I don't have a better name for this than the one I'm about to use. So again, you have to accept the terms that I'm using here for the sake of this conversation. And then what we'll do is we'll define I'm putting them. the long knives away. When you when you when you when you when you talk about terms, the terms of a novel or anything, what you're asking to happen is definition. And if the novel cannot identify the definitions of its own terms, that is a failure. Um and the reader has to, what you're doing as a, a book is doing is it's, it's, a, it's creating terms and then the author is creating a conversation by which the reader is, it is possible, if you read closely, to identify the terms and determine whether or not the book is being consistent within those terms. So on the one hand, you have thematic, like a book is doing thematic work. 
and I, right. I include plot in theme. Or if right. we want to call it plot work, I, I, I'm just for the sake of conversation, I'm going to call it thematic because I think plot is theme. Like you can't, you can't, they're inextricably linked, at least for the sake of this conversation. I understand we can get like, we can get really micro and macro and all the different rows <laughs> in this. Um, but then it's also doing narrative work. And I don't, by narrative work, I don't mean plot work. For the sake of conversation, what I mean is it's doing work in how it tells the story. Uh, structurally, emotionally, all those sorts Stylistically. of things. Stylistically. The way that it interacts with you as a reader. So there's, there's the terms of the themes and the plot and all that kind of stuff. But then the book is asking you, is asking to interact with you in a certain way. And th- that's an experiential thing. The book is like offering an experience. Mm-hmm. And so... I think there may be gray area between what in what the two of you are talking about in that second set of terms. In other words, does Tolls effectively carry well, out the terms I he think, lays before you in the experience I, of reading the novel? I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about more on a theoretical level uh, outside of this book, because I think where she says, "Can you can you criticize the tropes while still accepting the terms?" Heidi says, at least in this case, the tropes are the terms. Um. When you say that, Heidi, is that what you mean by it being a fantasy? Like the tropes become the fantasy. Part of it. Yeah. The tropes help build that fantasy world. Just like, again, just like in the movie Life is Beautiful. You can't, you can't tell the story that the director was telling without putting some unrealistic and okay, okay, cliches I, and tropes into that movie. Same thing with this book, I think. Okay, so let's say I accept that, which I do. But like, let's 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 accept that, and then go to her question here about right. uh, the idea of can you have it both ways? Where like it there is there is a lack of depth in terms of the understanding of the culture, or at least in the I'm not saying that Tolls doesn't understand the culture, but he chooses not to. Either he chooses make it to feel Russian. make it feel Russian or he chooses to change them or he chooses not to give us a complete picture. However you want to, I don't want to accuse him of not being good at his job is what I'm trying to say. But you could like, it's, it is offering an experience. And when she responds by saying that the incompletion, the incompleteness of the tropes the, the unrealistic nature of the tropes takes her out of the story because the book presents itself as one thing but doesn't fulfill it. I find that to be a pretty valid response. And I don't necessarily view it as being just a reader response. Like I think, like in other words, not just her. I don't, I, it's not to me, it's not, well, that's just in your opinion, man, type of thing. I think that that's actually a conversation about what the book is doing uh, on like, at least on a meta level. And so I, I, I think maybe I, it, that bothers me or I find her question, her criticism there more valid perhaps than you do, Heidi. And I don't want to say that you don't consider her question valid in the sense that like, she's not valid for asking it, but. Maybe you are invalid for asking that question. (laughs) So, I mean, there are no bad questions on the Q and a. Of course not. So it seems like what maybe what you are saying is that is is this a fair representation of what you're saying? Probably. If if (laughs) what 
if what Ian and I are affirming here is right, then it's the job of the author to set those terms as convincingly as possible. Like as he, and, and maybe tolls just doesn't do that. Well, I think the, maybe, I think another part of it is they have to be prepared. They have to recognize the gaps that those terms are also creating in the experience of the reader and be prepared to respond to them or else accept the criticism that they haven't been filled. So like if he is, if Mm -hmm. he is creating a fantasy and he is actively leaving, making unrealistic, presenting unrealistic tropes and and like actively, like, like, and it's meant to be a good thing, which I think we all agree. Like they're pretty fun, right? At best. I mean, at worst, they're pretty fun. Um, But if he's doing that, he has to understand, and this is true of any author, that the tropes that he is creating are necessarily going to create gap responses or like gaps or depth in the experience of the, of the reader. And he has to be prepared to respond accordingly. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's possible that what she's experiencing here is he is not filling those gaps. And she as someone who has studied Russian literature and culture extensively. And actually, I think Rachel even lived there. Um, like that, I think it's okay. I think he has to be prepared to accept that criticism. And he might say, Great, I accept that criticism. But it doesn't, I don't think that because he's trying to make it a fantasy, it doesn't make those gaps less of gaps. Does that make sense? Mm hmm. Yeah. And if I understood Heidi correctly, one of the things she was saying is having accepted the terms, gone where the novel wanted us to go, listen to Tolls finish his sentence, as it were. We are now empowered to look back at him and say, I like the way you did you did me just now, dude. Like, why'd you gotta go, why'd you gotta go and do that? This this jerked me out of the flow of the narrative. This moment was was clowning for a laugh. This, you know, you didn't you didn't execute the way you told me you were going to. I think that's perfectly valid criticism. Is that a fair characterization of what you were mm-hmm. saying, Heidi? Yeah. Yeah. We, I, you know, we probably should continue the conversation about the idea of, tr- of terms in every book to some degree. Uh, would you say then, Heidi, that the t- tropes are the terms in every book? Oh, I don't know if I'm prepared to make a sweeping statement like that, but certainly tropes are chosen intentionally on the part of an author in order to create the terms of a novel, right? And a um, a, a novel that's realistic has tries to avoid cliches, right? And a novel that is a fantasy or a fable is going, not a fantasy, that's wrong, but a novel that is a fable um, or an allegory is going to embrace cliches, right? We wouldn't call them cliches, we'd call them archetypes in that sense. Um, But um, that is, again, that to me is, is a question of Uh, the author's skill and what they choose, right? And so some of the criticism of this novel has been there's too many cliches, there's too many tropes. And I would say he did that on purpose because he's not trying to write a realistic novel. So do you, if you can like it or not like it, just like what, just like what Ian said, like for me, it pushes it a little bit about 
Sophia's like sudden taking up of the piano. It would be way different to me if she started playing the piano when she was like four and had invested in it over the years and she turned out to be a musical prodigy. But for her to pick it up at 18, it seems to me the only purpose of that was so that he could find the, so that the count could find the music teacher and treat him roughly because he's taking, thinks he's taking advantage of his daughter. And that just kind of like was a trope that kind of fell flat for me. But I accept it as part of the terms of the novel, right? I accept it as like, well, he did that on purpose. And um, and for me, it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. Are we, for the sake of a conversation again, definition of terms, are we making a distinction between uh, tropes and motifs here? Because it, um, now a cliche or a motif or whatever is commonly, it's like another word for a trope, but that's not necessarily how everyone defines it. Some people would define tropes as like, you know, phrases or images like figures of speech and things like that. My So my understanding of the two terms, and this could be outdated or antiquated, but my understanding is that a trope is a, is a recurring image across a genre of literature that multiple authors right. use. And it can be situational, it can be a visual image, it can be a turn of phrase, but it's, it is an illusion whenever it is used intended to evoke the feeling that that genre generally gives its reader. A motif is an image that recurs within a particular work over mm-hmm. and over again that carries thematic import. Right. So then perhaps so we're talking, talking about, about motifs. No, I'm talking about He's tropes. talking about tropes. Yes. Like what? Like, like, like the disgruntled dad protecting mm-hmm. his daughter from the guy who's actually innocent, like the, uh, the child prodigy, like the wise child of or the, that the artist Nina. who defects out of Bolshevik right. era Russia. Um, the, yeah. And he uses them so freely and so liberally and, um, that, that they are part of the fabric of the novel. And I think, some 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 readers are going to say like that's just a little bit too much it feels like a cliche but it isn't i mean it for he's using them i think intentionally to as ian said because they're used so widely they're um we you know he's using them in kind of like a joseph campbell kind of way like hey i'll throw a bunch of them in this book and they'll it'll and and i'll give it to you right um and you'll be able to relate to it and understand it and enter into it and Mm. i think he does it partly because it's not realistic now the problem i think that i think if we accept those terms then the problem we have is what we came up with last time which is Okay, so if these are all in there to kind of build this 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 life that's like bigger than life, that is the life is beautiful kind of thing. This is how you navigate through uh, like a shared national crisis, right? Then the question for this novel is like, but where does that come from? Mm-hmm. And you have to kind of reckon with an overarching purpose, a spiritual dimension. And since that's lacking, I think it's perfectly fair to say it feels a bit glib. It mm-hmm. falls a bit flat because he doesn't seem to address or put any kind of transcendent purpose behind it um, that's and, that's salvific on any other level than just getting than than just like at the end the count is happy. Yeah, which I think what because of what you're saying there for me, what actually is most works is more motifs than tropes. And is more Mm -hmm. what defines, like, reveals the 
what the book actually wants to be. Yeah, it's its I agree own with that. I think repeating that's right. motifs and, and mm-hmm. language and things like that. Well, we are going for a long time here. Do you, you want to add anything here? No, I don't think so. That was really fun. Um, I want to read this question. It's from Melanie. Melanie says, Heidi points out that the Count taking the Bishop hostage at gunpoint is a vindicating moment in the novel and one that shows growth fighting for something he loves. Great insight and completely agree. So Melanie agreed with you, Heidi. So, Well done, Heidi. Uh, what I wondered, though, says Melanie, is whether Tolls also, is also doing something clever here and inserting a literal Chekhov's gun. We have previously seen the Count go into the office and remember the gun and look to see if it's there. Though we did not see what it was that was hidden there. So it wasn't literally a gun on the wall, but there was a clear foreshadowing. So is Tolls playing with us and with the theme of Russian literature itself? Yes. I totally, I actually almost said something about Chekhov's gun in our last recording, but then I thought it would get kind of complicated because it was tangential. Like that was far afield <laughs> from the conversation we were having. But yeah, this is what I say. I think Tolls is really skilled as a writer. Like he is throwing all of these illusions in there. Um, and he is talking to Russian literature. He is talking to to our Western heritage and attempting to continue it and defend it uh, through these, I could like really funny. I absolutely think that was a Chekhov's gun reference. Does anybody want to give a background on that though? What that means? If you're going to put a gun in a scene, it's going to pay off. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. Uh, any, there Sad are too. no, <laughs> there should not be any details present that do not come into play later in the story. And if they don't, Cut them, <laughs> or you, or they, or there has to be a reason, and that was like that's something people have played with a lot since Chekhov posited his theory, but um, including George Saunders, um, yeah. What he says, I think, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to get exactly right, but he's talking to, isn't he talking about theater? Isn't he, didn't he say, if you put a gun on the stage in Act One, it has to go off in Act Five. Mm-hmm. I like it. That, uh, yeah, I think so. I don't know if it was, I don't know yes. exactly which acts yeah, we're talking same. about, but yeah. Exactly. But it has to, <clears throat> it, otherwise it's wasted. It peters out. It's bad writing. And yeah. Tolls never does that. Like he is so good at Chekhov's gun. He's, like, he throws things in there that come back, that weave together. Super skilled that way. So the funny thing is Hemingway like thought this was really dumb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And like, because it's unrealistic. And he had like he read the, he did the, he does this essay called the Art of the Short Story. I think you can read about this on Wikipedia. And then like he he completely like introduces characters on purpose and never brings them up again. But for him, the no, the notion of an inconsequential idea or detail rather was like was meaningful. And right. but but even Hemingway had to say, well, are readers going to look at that inconsequential detail and try to find meaning in it? And so that's where when you're a writer, it goes back to the, was you, the experience that you're offering a reader. Because when you are putting something in front of them, you're suggesting that there might be meaning in that thing. And so when there is not meaning in that thing, what is the impact of that on your reader? And if you are not aware of that, then you're not going to be able to build a connection with the reader or have as mo- make your art, your work as powerful as, as it could be. Like you at least have to be aware that the thing that you're not answering is a question that is still going to be asked. And in mm-hmm. the not offering an answer, you are impacting the experience of the reader and the great writers can control that. Their, their awareness of that becomes part of the, the creation. Um, I, 
I am I am not sure that I agree with Heidi that he is quite as good at that as she does. But but I have to think about it further. So I also think it's an it's a a redemption to the failed to the duel. Like I think it's like a healing to this duel that he's been shaming himself about over his sister's <laughs> honor. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um. So there's there's a uh, a, a psychological wound that's being healed for the count. That's not referenced in the um at like directly at all, but I still think that's right. You know, part of it is like you don't have to like the Chekhov's gun thing doesn't necessarily mean that you like can't have a gun in a, in a scene or like on the stage. But if you're going to like put it there, it's got to like if you have a character doing something with it, then it needs to show up show up later. Um, there's a lot of theory that goes into that that is worth a rabbit hole if you really want to. But there's a lot of people who are like, oh, just shoot me with Chekhov's gun right now. Um, Ian, do you? I want to let you add anything you want to here and give us the final thought because because uh, we are finally ready. I mean, you're not going to be here next time. Yeah, you're finally rid of me. Uh, I have I have very little to add. This has been a wonderful experience. Thank you both for having me, and thank you, listeners, for tolerating my ramblings. And um, I hope to get to join you guys again soon. For yeah, we'll, sure. Yeah, we'll make it. We'll make it happen at some point. You don't bring Ian on stage in Act One and then not on Act Five. <laughs> I am Chekhov's gun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, that brings us to the end of A Gentleman of Moscow. Thanks to everyone for joining the conversations and uh, you know, chatting along with us and reading along with us. Our next book is My Name is Asher Lev. Tim will be back for that. And uh, we are going to be discussing chapters one and two uh, for our next episode, uh, that episode will air on Monday, November 14th. Um, so yeah, chapters one and two, it's a little long. Those that's like an 85 page section or 83 page section or something, but it's just how it worked out as far as, you know, the most appropriate page break. So be aware that you may want to not wait till the night before, but also the great thing is you can listen to this episode whenever the heck you want. And you don't have to read right before the recording time, which is five days before they air. So Heidi, get on it. I mean, I'm talking to myself right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, well, that brings us to the end. Uh, thanks so much to everybody for listening. Don't forget that you can get access to uh, our bonus content. We're finishing up East of Eden. And then if you've been listening, Heidi, what book are we doing next before the end of the new year? Till We Have Faces. That's right. We're doing Damn Till it. We Have Faces uh, on on the show for the for the for for you subscribers. If you, if you are not a subscriber and want to be, you can go to closereads.substack.com. And you can subscribe. Or if you know of somebody who likes this book but is not a subscriber, you could, you know, give them the Christmas gift of close reads. <laughs> uh, you can give subscriptions uh, over over there. And we will have an announcement on the the big book that we're doing uh, in 2023 here pretty soon. So we're we're working out some details on that, trying to finalize our choice. So David and I are fighting about it. I'm just kidding. That actually has never happened in our entire <laughs> relationship. Well, if you need so... somebody to moderate. I'm happy to... <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ian. Uh, okay. Well, with that, uh, Heidi and I are going to get back to our, our uh, fighting, and Ian is going to solve Ongoing fighting. Exactly. Yep, that's exactly. right. <laughs> well, for uh, Ian Andrews and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.